Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. Well, I'm extra excited to be here today because I almost wasn't. I had the privilege of spending the last few days with leaders from around the world who are part of World Vision, which is this incredible ministry that's connecting the local church to the global poor. And it was just a great reminder for me that just because people have less, it doesn't mean that they are less. And I actually got to meet the person who organized like our World Vision event in Honduras not that long ago. A whole bunch of us participated in this thing called Chosen, where we had our pictures taken and then they put them up in Honduras and put the dignity of choice in the hands of a child. And a bunch of kids in this town called Sierra Lenka walked in and saw pictures of us and picked their sponsorship family. I met the lady from Honduras who organized that. She's a rock star. It was just so cool, and we're going to do something like that again, so if you weren't a part of it, you know, hold on to your hats. But then my flight that was supposed to get in at five yesterday got just straight canceled, and I spent the better part of a day running around airports with more cancellations and delays hopscotching my way home. So I got back this morning, and I'm here this morning with, yeah, with honestly just this extra sense of gratitude in my heart, because I almost didn't get to be here, and I am, and I'm, I'm thankful. God is good. So when I was in college at my freshman orientation, we were walking along, and I walked past this table that had sign-ups for fraternity and sorority rush, and my mom stopped me, and she said, hey, Mike, that might be a really cool mission opportunity to help people who need Jesus meet Jesus. You should do it. Some of you know my mom, some of you don't, but she is a straight-laced, old-school Baptist lady. I'm convinced to this day the Holy Spirit prompted her to say that because if she had stopped to think about everything I was walking into, she would have never made that suggestion in her life. It was everything you think of when you hear the word fraternity and more. But I'm convinced, like, I, you know, I don't go around recommending becoming a frat boy, but I'm convinced that's where God had me and it's what he wanted for me in that season, not just because he used me, but because he used these deep lifelong friendships I made to bless me, but also to radically transform my heart by growing my love for people who are far from God. But the process of being a pledge and joining a fraternity, like being on call to do crazy things at all hours of the day and night, is a season of my life I will never forget. I will also never forget the lyrics to the Spanish version of Shakira's Whatever, Wherever, because it got blasted at me while locked in a room with 20 other people for an entire week. Querida, queriba, quiero vivir la vida. I could sing the whole thing for you. I heard it on repeat for a week of my life. It's locked in. And it was like, a, it was a crazy time of learning these rules and these rituals like secret handshakes and participating in traditions. But it was also weird because you lived with the knowledge that you had to earn every inch. The members met once a month, and if any two of them blackballed you, you were out. And the standard was high. I joined a house that proudly had a better grade point average than anyone else on the street, and then the all-male average at the school. It had a bunch of Division I athletes. It had won the intramural cup for a number of years running, and very proudly had a stellar reputation on campus. And so you lived with the knowledge during this semester that if you didn't measure up, 
athletically, academically, or socially, you are going to be told, you just don't belong here. Because I think most of what we call religion in the world is built on that exact same system. I mean, technically, religion is something that answers the big questions of the world. Who are we and why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Who is God? But pragmatically, when we talk about religion, and often when the Bible talks about religion, what it means is rules for behaving that result in belonging. If you behave like us, then you get to belong like us. But if you don't, If you fail to check all the right boxes in the right way, if you don't measure up, then you're not a part of God's family. You don't get to go to heaven when you die, so you better learn that secret handshake. Like most religion in the world today, and I would argue most irreligion in the world today, is a self-righteousness scheme centered around some ideas about how your your performance and your behavior are earns you a spot at the table and allows you to belong. And the thing is, it's always been that way. We spent the last few weeks digging into the book of Colossians, which is this letter that Paul wrote from prison to a brand new church in the city of Colossae, which is modern-day Turkey, as these new believers started to take their first steps in their journey of faith with Jesus. And he wrote to warn them about some of the greatest dangers they were facing, one of which was taking this relationship they'd been offered and twisting it into a religion that told them somehow, some way, they needed to add their own performance on top of the performance of Jesus if they were going to truly be saved. And Paul addressed that idea in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 8. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up there. If you don't, no worries, the words will be up on the screen. And if you need one, or your kids do, we have Bibles in different colors for different ages back at the Next Steps table. We have reading plans. They're free. They're our gift to you. We love it when they disappear. Please take one before you leave today. But this is what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. A modern, ordinary person translation of that is, make sure that nobody comes along with big words and smart-sounding arguments about the stuff that you have to do that's built on human tradition or empty superstition rather than built on what Jesus already did for you. Like Paul's worried that these people are coming along and saying, hey, hey, you got to add this and you got to add this and you got to add this because what Jesus did isn't quite enough. But it's easy to get confused by that because the behavior, the way we're living our lives, built on the work of Jesus and following God's commands and built on empty superstitions or human traditions, a lot of that looks really similar on the surface level. But it isn't. And like a month and a half, I'm going to have to dramatically shift the way that I speak up here. Not because I want to, it's being forced upon me. I'm a hands talker. This is why I use this over ear thing instead of a handheld one, even though those are cooler. Because I I can't do this without getting both my arms into This is a full body workout for me every Sunday morning. But in six weeks, I have to have surgery on an epically torn labrum in my right shoulder, and then my arm's going to be immobilized for six weeks. I don't even know how that's going to go. So I apologize in advance 
if I stop making sense or if I make even less sense than normal because I can't do this and this anymore. It's, it might throw me for a huge loop. But I, I originally tore the labrum, throwing like 200 pitches of batting practice to my son. And to be fair, I struck him out a number of times. I blew the heater right by him. So if you're in here, Jimmy, eat dirt. But uh, <laughs> in the process, I learned there's a difference between behaving like an athlete and being an athlete. I'm about to get the scar to prove that's true. This is what Paul's talking about here. There's the difference between behaving like a religious person and being a follower of Jesus. And there may be some overlap. On the outside, they might look similar, but one of them is hollow on the inside. And Paul's worried that these people who are coming along adding rules and adding rituals are like, you guys, this will help you connect to God. And Paul's like, it's not going to help you connect to God. It's going to take you captive. Like all that stuff may look and sound solid on the surface. It may look similar to being a follower of Jesus if you don't look closely but ultimately, it'll become another cage that traps you. You're going to lose your freedom inside that thing because what it does is it makes your faith, your salvation, and your relationship with God completely dependent on your performance. But the tragic truth of the universe is that you cannot ever perform at a level that's good enough. I don't know, there's enough religion alive in, in a lot of us. There's enough still alive in me. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But aren't there a lot of rules and regulations in the Bible? Doesn't God give us a, a whole like, set of commands and traditions? Like, what about the Ten Commandments? That's a fair question. And the answer is yes, that stuff does exist in the Bible, but the order matters. The why matters. We live and die on the why. When it comes to obedience to the commands of God, we live and die on the why because one why leads to liberation and the other why leads to captivity, to the belief that we check the boxes and we follow the rules and we do the right things. Why? To earn the love of God. We behave first so that we can belong. And that is a toxic prison that has absolutely nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not good news at all. I said this three weeks ago. I'll repeat it again. The good news of the gospel is that God's acceptance has nothing to do with our performance. Nothing. Like the message of Jesus is all about freedom. The commands God gives us are all about freedom. And that's been true from the very beginning. See, when the Old Testament law got handed to the Israelites, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he came down with the Ten Commandments, they had just been liberated from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, where they were told every single day of their lives that they had absolutely no value as human beings, that humanity was a complete accident, and that the elemental spiritual forces of the world, the gods, were capricious and angry, and they had to be placated by ritualistic behaviors. And the Israelites were also told that their entire value to anybody else on this planet was wrapped up in what they did, in the work of their hands and in their own performance. And then God plucked them out of Egypt and he gave them Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, these first five books of the Bible we call the Pentateuch, to say, you are not an accident. You were created in love on purpose by me and you have value because you are loved. So 
so here's a picture of the lives I dreamed you up, knit you together, and breathed life into your nostrils to live. Here are some guardrails that help to ensure you're not going to become a slave to any of that stuff any longer. See, the point of the Exodus wasn't just to get the Israelites out of slavery. It was to get the slavery out of the Israelites. And God's commands are still about that for us today. They're about setting us free, getting the slavery out of us so that we can be fully human and fully alive, be all we were made to be. Jesus offers the only system on this planet that flips self-righteousness and performance addiction completely upside down. He says, it's not behave so that you can belong. You already belong. If you believe, you belong. That's enough. If you believe, you belong completely and forever. There are no metrics that you got to hit. There are no membership meetings where you might get blackballed. There are no performance incentives if you believe you belong. And nothing you could do, no box you fail to check, no hoop you fail to jump through, no line you ever cross can remove you from it. That's freedom. That's freedom, and we get to live with it every day. You guys, once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, every single moment of our lives is lived from a place of freedom. Everything we do flows from the freedom we live in because he handed it to us. And so God's commands are are about helping us live into the fullness of that freedom, and we obey them in response to his love. Because it allows us to be free, not in order to earn his love, because any system built on doing that is a prison. It's rules that put us back in chains, but God's rules break our chains. And I realize it sounds weird to the American mind to put the words rules and freedom in the same sentence, because we've been enculturated into this post-enlightenment philosophical idea that liberty is primarily negative. That, that freedom means freedom from, and that any sort of rule, any sort of command, any sort of outside constraint that we are not free from means we're not free. But I'd argue that, that biblically and absolutely pragmatically, that's not actually how freedom works in the world. Certainly not one that's been twisted and stained by our sin. Freedom from just isn't real in a world disfigured. By sin-stained souls. Because the truth is we are always going to serve something. Always. Even atheists and agnostics will admit that if they're honest. The famous agnostic thinker, writer, and professor David Foster Wallace once observed this. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they were your tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid You'll need ever more power over others to keep fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And on one level, we all know this stuff already. There is no such thing as not worshiping. 
We live in the middle of a culture that tells us any sort of commands, any sort of rules, any sort of guidelines restrict our freedom. It's why we crash into people out there every single day who keep God at arm's length because how dare the creator of the universe pretend that he knows what's better for their lives than they do. But David Foster Wallace is right. Freedom from the designer's design is not freedom at all. It's slavery to whatever thing sits on the throne of your heart and demands your worship. Money, sex, power, achievement, fame, glory, religious performance. There's no such thing as not worshiping. But we all want to be free, right? So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you free? Anything you can't put down and take a break from, you're a slave to. Anything that captures your heart and creates anxiety in you, you're a slave to. Anything that demands your performance, you're a slave to. So would you take a second this morning and consider the question, what is it that you're longing to be free from? For some of us, it's a sin. We can feel it driving a wedge between us and Jesus, but we just can't seem to get out from under it. For some of us, it's guilt and shame. We've slapped the label failure on our forehead and we wear it around every day, convinced that what we have done or failed to do defines who we are and who we're going to be for the rest of our lives. For some of us, it's, it's insecurity. It's this ego playing itself out as a worry that we aren't enough or we'll never be seen as enough. For others of us, it might be an addiction to money, an addiction to work, an addiction to sex, an addiction to drugs. Whatever it is, for you, I want you to know right now, like I want all of us to walk out of here this morning knowing that we know that we know God wants to set you free. God wants to set you free even more than you want to be free. Whatever prison you're living in, your desire to be liberated from it has got nothing on God's desire to liberate you and he can and he will set you free. But the catch is it's difficult because of who we are and what we're surrounded by to actually step into that freedom to actually accept it, to believe, like, like what the book of James says, that God's perfect law grants us freedom and to move toward the meaning and toward the fullness God grants us. But that's true freedom, you guys. True liberty, philosophically speaking, is positive liberty. It's the ability to maximize the created, creative purpose that God has placed inside every single one of our souls. And he offers that to us, but it's so easy to reject it. It's so easy to get caught up in human traditions and empty superstitions that tell us, hey, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to check this box, you got to perform here. If you really want it to count, you got to add your doing to what Jesus already did if you want to be good enough. And that's Paul's concern in Colossians chapter 2. And he says, you know, that, that comes from two basic places, human traditions and empty superstitions, the elemental spiritual forces of this world. And to be clear, Paul's not against traditions in general. There's value and beauty in traditions. There there are good traditions and bad traditions. And I think good traditions are anything we do repeatedly so that we can remember things our souls need to remember. Like my family decorates a tree every Christmas, and uh, it is not a pretty tree. This is, this is just a, a thing that we do. It's not the kind of tree that's in a lot of your houses. Instead of like decorating it beautifully, we put hundreds, hundreds of ornaments on this thing, and a lot of them are hideous. One of them's even like a wedding ornament that Jenny and I got that someone dropped and the groom's head fell off, and I love it so much now 
because it feels like a more accurate picture of what marriage has been than like the wedding day one. You know, Jenny hates it. But we put that on there and our family gathers around this tree. And as we hang the ornaments, we talk about the pictures that are on them about the places that we picked up each ornament and about the, the memories. And we have a ridiculously good time creating a ridiculous looking tree. Now Jenny has a, a different tree with color coordinated ornaments and white lights instead of flashing multicolored ones. And it's pretty, but it is not the real tree. <laughs> this is the real tree in all of its tacky glory. In all of its tacky, complete with headless groom. And I love it. And this is a tradition we're gonna keep doing because it forces us to just stop in the middle of a busy season and remember the beautiful things. And thank God for the blessing of family and his goodness to us over so many years. And my guess is that all of you have a similar tradition. You have things that you do repeatedly that press pause on your life and point you toward the beautiful things. And that's good tradition. But not all traditions are good. There are bad traditions as well. And I think bad traditions are anything behaviors we repeat because we believe they're the basis for our belonging. It's anything we find ourselves doing again and again and again out of a spirit of fear because we're worried that if we forget to do it, if we don't check that box, we might not belong anymore. Somebody might look at us and say, you're not measuring up, you don't fit in. And we live like that even inside the church. And it's tragic, I think, because the truth is, like, most of us, if we had a test put in front of us, we had to answer, like, whether we think it actually works like this, we'd say, intellectually, I don't believe it works like this. But practically speaking, we walk out the doors of the church and we act like we are, like, in God's family and then out of God's family. And then in God's family and then out of God's family and in and out and in and out and in on a rolling basis completely determined by how good we're living. And again, that has absolutely nothing at all to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's the way that our world works. We have this performance addiction that says, unless you are good enough, unless you're performing, there's no way God could possibly keep loving you. So we believe it. And then in the middle of that, even good traditions go bad. Stuff that we began doing because it was a beautiful way to remember who God is and how God loves shifts and it's not a symbol or a picture anymore. Instead, it's a measuring stick. It's a dividing line where we get to decide who's in the church and out of the church, who's in God's family and not in God's family because they didn't do that thing we thought they should do. And Paul's really hitting this hard in Colossians 2 because that was a major issue for Jews in the first century. It's why Jesus had so many conversations with Pharisees. There were these guys who were trying really hard to chase after God, these hyper-religious people, but Jesus confronted them regularly about traditions God had handed them to point them toward his glory and his beauty and his love that they had twisted and turned into these religious metrics whereby they decided whether others were good enough to be a part of God's people or not. And in Colossae, not long after the church was planted, some Pharisees showed up and they're like, hey, it's so cool that you guys believe in Jesus. Ah, oh, it's a great starting line, but just FYI, not the finish line. Here's a list of stuff you got to do in the right way, at the right time of day, with the right words, standing in the right place, facing the right direction if you really want it to count. And Paul's like, stop, don't, don't go there, don't listen to that. 
You do not need to add human traditions to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Stop. And he says the other thing that can get us is the, the elemental spiritual forces of the world, these superstitions. And to be frank here, he's talking about the metaphysical realm. We have a very real enemy of our souls called the devil who is hell-bent on stealing, killing, and destroying humanity and everything God promised us. And he has an army of demons working for him who have a whole lot of power in our world right now because we rejected God's rule and handed it over when we sinned. And that might sound weird because we don't talk a lot in the Western world about the metaphysical. Even though for most of human history, most humans have acknowledged that the spiritual realm exists and most of the world today outside the West is very comfortable talking about it. And in the West, we like to believe that we don't talk about it because we have this ethnocentric idea that we're, just, we're, we're smarter, we, we just know better. <laughs> we're not. We're proud, so we're blind. There's a humility that exists in Africa and in Latin America and in Asia that allows them to have a wisdom we simply don't have. The reason we don't talk about the spiritual realm in the Western world is that we can't control it and we don't want to believe in anything we can't control. It has nothing to do with whether every single one of us knows that it's real, whether we felt that it's real. We can't control it, so we want to pretend it's not true. But the truth is, God created the world and he handed it to humanity. He said, hey, will you rule over this? But then we threw our lot in with the devil and we gave him the thing that we were supposed to reign over. We gave him so much control that the Bible calls him the God of this age which sounds kind of freaky, but I think it's cool if you stop and think about it, because guess what? This age is coming to an end. The final chapter for this age is already written. And even now, the whole rest of Colossians 2, Paul talks about how much power Jesus has over the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Like they have a temporary power and a limited power, but Jesus reigns supreme over all forever. So we live as believers in Jesus Christ, in freedom and in power. That's what the Bible tells us. But that doesn't mean that as long as this age lasts, there aren't very real spiritual forces trying to tempt us to reject Jesus, to walk away from Jesus, to live in a prison, even a prison of religion. And that may sound like a weird thing to say. You're like, why would the devil ever lead us toward religion? Doesn't it seem kind of counterproductive and counterintuitive to his whole mission. But once again, I'll point to the Pharisees and to a whole bunch of neo-Pharisees. One of the best ways to blind people to the brilliance of a relationship with Jesus is to throw some religious rituals into the mix. It's a cunning deception because it comes beautifully packaged as something that looks like truth. Like, hey, if you really want to have a relationship with God, you got to be good enough. You got to earn it. I know something in your soul because you're human doesn't feel like you're loved, and that's because you aren't. <laughs> Why would God love you? He's not going to love you until you, you know, you follow the regulations a little bit more stringently and you participate in the rituals a little bit more frequently. You better get going. It sneaks into our souls and eats them alive because here's what it does with our lives. It leaves us in a spot where we're running really hard. We're trying and trying and striving and running and running and running. We feel like we're getting nowhere because performance is a treadmill. It doesn't lead us anywhere. We can't do what Jesus already did. And the worst thing is because we're surrounded by this pay your own way, earn it by yourself culture. Like even in our more coherent moments, we're like, you know what? I don't think this is working. 
this feels like a treadmill. We're not tempted to like step off the treadmill and rest and live in the freedom God grants us. You know what we do instead? We just try a different treadmill. Like this is how we are. Like, well, this treadmill didn't work. Maybe that treadmill will get me where I want to go. We just hop onto some other ritual that we hope will do the trick this time. It's like Uncle Buck. It's one of the top 10 funniest movies ever made. If you disagree, you are either wrong and not funny or you haven't seen Uncle Buck. But anyways, let me explain for those who haven't seen it. There's this emergency that pops up in the middle of the night and this couple is forced to leave their three kids in the care of his degenerate 'er ne'er-do-well brother. How often did Buck do well? Ne'er. He ne'er did well. And Buck, played by John Candy, shows up at their house and he's talking to the understandably nervous sister-in-law. And at one point he goes, hey, I quit smoking. And she smiles. She has this moment. She's like, you know what? Maybe this isn't going to be a disaster. Maybe Buck is straightening out his life. Maybe he's just aiming it in the right direction. She goes, oh, good. And he goes, yeah, isn't that something? I, uh, I took up cigars instead. Yeah, I, uh, I just I had to get off those cigarettes. But I got a five-year plan. I moved from the cigarettes. I'm off those. Now I'm on cigars. Then I'm going to do chewing tobacco and eventually get to that nicotine gum. Because this is what we do with, like... Rituals and superstitions. We act like it's an achievement that we quit cigarettes and picked up cigars. But it's not. It's only when we step off the treadmill and rest in what Jesus already accomplished that we begin to live free because he did what we couldn't do. We got to stop trying to earn what he already earned. Once we do, we can live free. And we can live free today. We can do it this morning. I don't know. I don't know what it is you're longing to be free from. I don't know what it is that's sitting on the throne of your heart and demanding your worship. I don't know what hollow philosophies about rules and rituals and traditions have like gripped your soul and made you believe that your belonging is tied to your behavior, but whatever that stuff is, you're free. If you believe, you belong, so you don't got to go back to the prison of any of it anymore. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. My prayer this morning for all of us is that we will remember that every single day of our lives, that Jesus is enough. And maybe one way you can start is to take the challenge I threw out there a few weeks ago. If you are here for the first time, you weren't here then, or even if you haven't done it yet, Just one way that I'm trying to orient my heart toward remembering Jesus is enough is every day till Easter, 30 seconds, I'm reading Colossians 1, 15 through 20. 30 seconds a day, I'm reading that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Jesus is enough. 
And if we don't believe that, if we refuse to embrace it, what we're going to find is that our lives are trapped by hollow philosophies built on human traditions and empty superstitions. We're going to find ourselves running and running on the treadmill of faith and getting nowhere. But if we believe it, if we accept that we are fully loved, fully forgiven, and we fully belong, what we'll discover is that Jesus provides what religion can only promise. That a relationship with Jesus points to what rules and ritual, or provides what rules and rituals can only point to. Life, abundant and full. Will you just pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for life, abundant and full. Thank you for accomplishing for us what we couldn't accomplish on our own. Lord, we confess. It's been easy for, for all of us at different points in our lives to buy in hook, line, and sinker to this culture of performance that surrounds us. It's been easy for us to, to become convinced that somehow, some way, we got to add our performance to what you already performed. That we got to add our own good works to the fact that you stepped out of eternity into the human story and gave your life so we could be forgiven and set free. But God, would you set us free from that today? Would you liberate us to believe that we belong and that you are enough? Would you help us to step into the fullness of that freedom, not so that we can earn your love, not so that we can earn your acceptance, but because your rules and your regulations and your commands grant us the freedom to maximize the created, creative potential that lives in us. Would you free our souls today to be all that you created us to be? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.